0: Let's turn to Hebrews together. We're starting chapter 11 this morning, probably one of the best known, probably chapters anyway, of the book of Hebrews, known as the Hall of Faith, Hall of Faith, and you'll see why as we read our text this morning. Chapter 10, I want to start in verse 39 and get a running jump into chapter 11. We're looking at uh, eight verses, um, 39 through eleven seven. reading from the ESV hear the word of God. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 39 of Hebrews. God's holy word. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. But by faith we, are, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Want me to wait? Okay. <laughs> through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith though he died he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark, for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So the context, we're talking about context, the context, or well the larger context of this passage, we we'll don't just take it out of anywhere. The larger context of this passage is, of course, the purpose of the book of Hebrews. You've heard me say it. Pastor Ricky, Pastor Chris, to declare the supremacy, sufficiency, and superiority of Christ, as an exhortation to remain faithful, to continue in the faith, to to persevere in the faith in the midst of persecution. Not only Christ, not only has the author shown us that Christ is better, more superior than angels and Moses and Joshua, the promised land, all the Old Testament priests. He also, within this exhortation, within this promotion, I would say, of, of seeing Christ better, he gives warnings. There's been several warnings we looked at. Uh, and, and, and he mixes these, these, these wonders about the greatness of Christ and these warnings about walking away. Warnings about defecting from your allegiance to Christ, turning your backs, looking for other ways to seek your hope, to seek strength and fellowship with God. By the time we got to chapters 7 through 9, the author, through those chapters in really an iron-shut case, reveals to us how Jesus mediates a new and better covenant, better than the old covenant, because this new covenant came to us, inaugurated to us by the shedding of His blood. For the forgiveness of our sins. And now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God as our better, our superior, our our sufficient and supreme high priest. Giving us, believers, unrestrained, unrestricted access into the throne of God. We've talked about that a lot. By which we can enter confidently, Hebrews tells us, to receive mercy, to find grace, to help us in the time of need. If there's one single verse that speaks of the supremacy of Christ in his priesthood, it would be chapter 9, verse 12. When Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, into that inner sanctum, into the holy of holies, into the place where the kind of glory, the presence of God is, he entered into that place not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his own sacrifice, thus securing an eternal redemption. And right right before the author goes from this glorious truth about Christ's supremacy as our high priest into chapter 11, the hall of faith, he again, if you remember from two weeks ago and a little bit last week, he again reminds the church about apostasy, about the turning away, about abandoning and renunciating your faith. We've said this before. The, the, The reason God gives us these warnings is to help us press on is to help you and I to press on, to persevere, to stay the course. As young Timothy was told by his mentor, Apostle Paul, fight the good fight of faith. These warnings are meant to, to be self-reflection, to take seriously, not that you can lose your salvation, when if you're a genuine believer, you're secure in Christ. But God uses these warnings to help believers persevere. God uses wonders, the beauty and glory and sufficiency, superiority of Christ, and warnings to press on, to help us press on, to persevere in the faith. The author, as you have probably noticed by now, also likes to use words of encouragement. Warnings and encouragements. And sometimes his encouragements come after the warnings. Chapter 10, verse 26 through 31 was the warning about apostasy, about falling away. Chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. And then in chapter 32 through 38, Pastor Chris did a great job last week. He tells them, listen, to, to look back and to be encouraged by their past faithfulness in the midst of persecution, to look forward to the, to the glorious reward of knowing Christ, who's more glorious than anything this world has to offer, anything this world can throw at you. And, and, and I thought about that as I, as I was studying this morning. I'm thinking, isn't that true for us? Aren't, aren't we, don't we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness when, when we struggle, when we face hardships and difficulties in our lives, it's amazing how I, I'll talk about me, how I forget about God's faithfulness in the past. We need to be reminded, keep a journal of God's faithfulness as an encouragement to us, to, to recognize the reward of, of knowing Christ now, especially when we're bombarded by all kinds of circumstances, hardships, distractions, that lure us away, lure us, lure us away from Christ being our greatest treasure. There's so many things coming at us in our culture. And then there's this transition verse, this great verse, verse 39, chapter 10. Remain faithful. There's warnings. Warnings that help us to remain faithful, remain confident, be encouraged, verse 39. But we... Word of encouragement, transition. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Who is he talking about? Those who apostate, those who 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 fall away and are destroyed. That's not. He's saying I, I have better things for you, church. We are not. We are not those, but of those who what have faith and preserve their souls. Press on. Therefore, Hebrews eleven one. It's all about enduring, persevering, not falling away, not shrinking back, pressing on. And that's what the author wants, to, wants them to see. So what you find in chapter 11, verse 1 and following is just an illustration and examples of people who, are, who, who have gone before us in, in the midst of this warning about falling away. In the midst of this wondering of the beauty and glory of Christ, he says, listen, press on. Let let me give you some examples of the Old Testament. The people that went through hard times and difficult times, I know you're going through some, but let let me point to those of old, those men and women of old who've gone through this, who have endured the faith. Therefore, this whole passage is an exhortation to them and to us that we should cling to Christ, hold on to Christ in the midst of difficulties, hardships. And everything in chapter 11, verse 1, following the rest of that chapter, is directly connected to chapter 10, verse 39. But we are those who have faith and persevere, persevere, as George Michael says. You gotta have faith. Actually, the faith he's talking about is the opposite of the faith we're going to be talking about today. I just thought I'd bring that up. So, three things. Song stuck in my head. It's going to be stuck in yours the rest of the day. So, three things. Let's talk about the explanation of faith, the example of faith, the examples I should be plural, uh, and the exhortation to faith. Okay. That's where we're headed. So number one. Now faith, famous passage, right? Everyone knows this one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For all of us who claim to be Christ followers, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, you do so how? By faith, right? Faith is the channel. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the benefits of Christ's work on the cross. John Owens, a Puritan, said this, It is faith alone which, from the beginning of the world in all ages, under all dispensations of divine grace, hath been the only principle in the church of the living God, of obtaining the promises, of inheriting life eternal, and doth continue so to be unto the consumption of all things. Spiritual life is by faith and victory and perseverance and salvation, so they were from the very beginning." In other words, we don't, come to faith, we don't come to Christ by faith, believing, we'll talk about that in a minute, receiving the benefits of what Christ has done for us and then live our life by some other means, not by faith. Faith is the chief instrument of the Holy Spirit being used in our hearts and our ongoing growth in grace. And, and what the author wants to do by pointing to the men and women of old Who endured to to the end? He wants his listeners or his readers of the letter, and this pastor wants all of us here today to endure, to press on, to not fall away, to grow in their faith. So let's look at verse one. Now, this is not an all comprehensive definition of faith, but it's important. It's foundational. Right, so it's important that we understand what faith is, and this is a good explanation. Again, not exhaustive. The first thing we should notice is the word assurance. Some of you might have confidence. Some of you might have substance. Maybe a footnote that says realization. the The word in the Greek is as a wide and um, comprehensive meaning. That's why you have different translations. I read a commentator, and I, I thought it was so good what he said. About that word substance or, or, or assurance listen to what he said what that word means faith is the the substance the stuff of things hoped for it is the foundation upon which they are brought into being it is the confident attitude toward those things God has promised and it is the guarantee that gives us a sure possession even now end quote The substance, the foundation, confident attitude, and the guarantee, all in that word. Biblical faith is trusting in God, who God is and what God has promised. And many of those things we have not yet received, but but we're hopeful, right? We're hopeful. Uh, It is the assurance of things hoped for. Not the kind of hope that, you know, baseball season starting. You know who I want to win the World Series in October. I'm already hoping. If you're not sure, it's the Yankees. Well, <laughs> I hope it doesn't snow anymore this year. That's a good hope. I'm done with snow. I know, some people like snow. That's cool. Not me. If it never snowed again, I'd be happy. <laughs> but this hope is stuff we are sure about, that sure will happen. That's the biblical hope. And what are some of the things we are sure of and find our hope in when we face difficulties and when we face trials, we face hardships or or we are in a difficult place. I don't know about you, but we are assured, we have faith that all things work together for the good, right? For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We have faith, we are hopeful and assured that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, Romans. We're hopeful, we have faith and assured that God will never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake his children, Hebrews and Deuteronomy. We're hopeful and assured that when we breathe our last and our eyes close and we leave this planet, we will see the Savior. John 14. All the things that are unseen that we hope for, did you notice where they came from? The Word of God. Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Our hope is, in what is unseen, rest in the revelation of God. We'll talk more about that as we move on. But let me say this. If, there's, if you lack faith or you doubt, and all of us do, run to the scripture. Run to the word of God where God reveals himself. Well, God will meet you, reveal himself, and you will see the promises he made Faith is not, no matter what George Michael says, something you need to find in yourself. Faith is principally about the object of your faith. Faith is more than just believing in your head. The things you read, a mental knowledge, a a, a gut feeling, reach down deep. No, it's a personal trust, a complete reliance upon God himself. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Number two, it is the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction means to validate through evidence. That's why some of your translation might have the word evidence in it. Think for a moment of the people in the Old Testament for the hope that they had, the hopes that they had, but they never saw it, that we get to see. They, they, they were promised of the coming Messiah, the one who will take away sins. We get to see that. Think of Jeremiah and Ezekiel when both those men prophesied that the new covenant will come and he will sprinkle us and clean us with, with water. Our hearts, that our stone will become like flesh. I'll write my laws on your hearts. I'll write my laws on your minds. God promised all of that. They never get to see it. They have not got to see that. But they were convinced the men of old, the prophets of old, were convinced that it was going to happen. Now, isn't that faith? Faith is living in a hope that is so real. It is so real, it gives substance. It gives evidence to the hope that you have in the present what's going to happen. They simply, they, they, you know, they simply took God at his word and lived on the basis of God's promises. And and through the blessings, promises are not yet revealed. The man of faith is convinced of their reality. People of faith look at their circumstances as not just random acts or happenstances. People of faith look at their circumstances, look at their life, look at what's going on, and they discern the, the activity of God, that God is doing something. The invisible God is present in my life, in my present situation, and I'm able to endure because of that. Faith, conviction of things not seen. What, what, what are some of the things that, what, what are some of the unseen things that we, we grasp by faith? Justification, forgiveness of sins, The apostle Paul told this to the Ephesian church. He said this, blessed be the God and father, chapter one, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us, the church, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the unseen. And he goes on to say what some of those unseen things are, that that we are to believe and trust Our election in Christ, our adoptions as sons of God, our holiness in God's sight, our redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, our forgiveness of sins, all a matter of grace given to us, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, how do all that become real? How do those things become our strength, our joy, our hope? By faith. By faith, by believing what God has said. All those things, by faith, are promised to us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we receive those things by faith. Let me ask you this question. Would you rather have a weak faith, W-E-A-K, a weak faith, in a sure promise of God, or... A strong faith, a deep conviction, and a promise that God never made. I thought about that this week. I was wondering how many people put their faith and trust into something God never promised? I can't help but think of the naming and claiming prosperity gospel people who claim something that God never said with money, wealth, or, or any other thing that inflates God to some sort of genie in heaven. And I'm not promoting, I don't think Scripture promotes weak faith, but our conviction of things not seen and the hope of things not seen had better be, ought to be, in the things that God has really promised, right? Right? True faith in God's promises are possible because there's nothing that can hinder God. Faith in God knows that he is of infinite power, but it does not presume on that power. Rather, faith chooses to follow God wherever he leads, trusting him all the way. No matter what the results, just like Jesus did, Abba, Father, all things are possible, yet not what I will, but your will be done. True faith in God knows his power to do all things, but submits to his will knowing that he is good, he is wise, he is loving, he is faithful. False teachers like Kenneth Hagin and Benny Hinn and Copeland, Yed, Osteen, teach you to speak into existence, financial wealth, physical healing, that the spiritual laws, catch this, if you don't know the word faith theology, that the spiritual laws of the universe work on this force of faith, having faith in faith. And even God is subject to this force of faith. Words can be manipulated, actually create realities. These law of these faith force operate independently of the sovereignty of God. And even God himself, they will tell you, is bound by this force of faith. That's idolatry. That's not biblical faith. That is not biblical faith. That turns us into little gods running around trying to think we're the sovereign ones. I'm reminded, as I was studying, the the three Jewish boys in Babylon. Bow down and worship the golden idol, Nebuchadnezzar. If not, we're throwing you in the fiery furnace. Cook you like a roasted chicken. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or, since you have kids, Rakshak and Benny, right? They knew their Bibles. They knew the first commandment. Don't worship anyone but God himself. And they trusted God. Know what they said? They said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you this. The, the, the answer is no. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O oh God. Oh, O oh king, excuse me. But if not, be it known, O oh king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Either he's gonna rescue us, excuse me, he's gonna rescue us, or he's gonna take us out of here. But either way, we know our Bibles. God is able God is strong enough, God has infinite power, God is with us, God has given us his word, we're going to hope in the unseen, as we enter into this, trusting in our God, regardless of the results, that's biblical faith. That's biblical faith. And although they're not mentioned in chapter 11, if I had wrote chapter 11, I would have put them in there. God didn't ask me. They received their commendation because Jesus showed up in the fiery furnace. They weren't cooked like roasted chicken. Jesus shows up and he spares them. explanation of faith start with the example by faith 19 times it's written i believe in this chapter we understand that the universe was created by the word of god so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible first thing he says the entire cosmos the entire world and universe was the work of our god the creator Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God created the world into existence, ex nihilo, which is the Latin word for out of nothing. The universe was formed by simply God speaking, his word, his command, let there be, and everything came into existence. We understand this by faith, unless some of you were there. I wasn't there. We read in scripture, we know our God he created the, God, the world with purpose. And that we are part of that purpose. In fact, the word understand there in our text means to think or to reason. Faith is reasoning and thinking and perceiving that there's a material world. There's got to be a creator. Right? Like a, like a good song or a good instrumental or, or, the, or, or just a good, uh, maybe a good painting. Like it didn't just show up. There's a creator who created The faith that the author is talking about is not a blind stupid gullible you know unintelligent hollow faith it's a rational and substantial because the divine word is the word of power and the power of God also creates and brings illumination the origin of all things by the creative power and word of God because he revealed it to us his revelation his showing us how or at least revealing to us how he created, calls for the response of faith. You understand that? Creation calls for the response of faith. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaim his handiwork. Not the Big Bang Theory. Good show, but not it. Not Darwinism, evolution, species evolved into another species. That's why in Genesis it says over and over again, according to its own kind, according to its own kind, according to its own kind. MacArthur writes this, evolution with its theory of chaos and its theory of unintelligent matter existing in random features, organizing itself by chance into highly complex forms and ultimately to the level of human intelligence and personality is so preposterous and so impossible and so scientifically inaccurate that no honest person could believe it. Evolution is a violation of all that modern science knows to be true, end quote. Now whether you believe in the one day theory or not, that's we could, we could discuss that. I, I'm, a, I'm a literal one-day guy, but I know people love Jesus that, that, that would disagree with me, and that's okay. But God is the creator of the universe. It was created by the infinite, uh, omnipotent power of God. It really takes, I think, greater faith to look at this design and this beauty and this glory and say it was made by no design at all. Can it be can it be that we love to kill unborn children? Could it be not we the world? Could it be that there's so much hopelessness? There's so much anxiety in the world? Because we have bought into this lie. We've bought into this lie that we have no creator. No no person, you know, no eternal purpose. We, we've come from slime where there's no reason or purpose in our lives. What if we truly believe that God created us in his imago day, in his image and likeness, endowed every single human being with dignity, value, and honor who have real purpose, real meaning. What if we got our identity from that? That would set us free. You don't need to go and prove yourself so that people will give you dignity, value, it has been bestowed upon us because we believe by faith that God created the universe. Men and women. Faith in the creative power of God. Faith in the provision of God. Look at verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, Through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. Now, we move from creation, Genesis 1 and 2, to Genesis chapter 5, 4, chapter 4, right? So many of you know the story, right? Adam and Eve had two sons. One is Cain, one is Abel. Cain was a man of agriculture. Abel, the man, was a shepherd. Both of these men, if you read in Genesis 4, came to worship God. They understand they needed to come to worship their creator, and they brought offerings. Cain brought something from the field. Abel, chapter four, verse four, says brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And what happened is God favored, if you read in Genesis, God favored Abel's sacrifice, but rejected Cain's sacrifice. In fact, Cain got downright angry about it, was not happy. And God said, listen, Cain, do what's right, and you'll be accepted. But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Don't let it overtake you. Cain didn't listen to God. (laughs) He nursed his anger, and what did he do? He killed his brother, Abel. And the Lord said, what have you done? I hear your voice of your brother's blood crying for me in the ground. And then Cain was banished from the presence of the Lord. But the Bible doesn't say exactly why God favored Abel's and not Cain's sacrifice. Some people say, some commentators will tell you, that the reason that Abel's sacrifice was was accepted and and Cain wasn't is because Abel understood that he was a sinner and offering up a sacrifice, the animal, remember what the Bible says, without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin, and he knew he was a sinner, and what sinners do, sinners bring sacrifices of blood for atonement for sins. Abel understood that. Even though the law wasn't given yet, many years later, but Abel understood that sacrifice because his father Adam, remember, sinned against God, tried to hide himself and cover himself. What did God do? He shed the blood of an animal and clothed him. It's possible. It's possible. Maybe that's the reason why Abel was accepted, understood he was a sinner, brought the sacrifice, maybe. But I think, but I think it's more about what It's more about when Abel came to worship God, he did it by faith. And he did it not only by faith, you know he did it by faith because he brought the firstborn of his flock. Hebrew scholar Delich says this, Abel offered his first and best. Cain offered only that which came to hand, came first to hand. The outward difference betokened or indicated also an inward one. Calvin says this, the sacrifice of Abel was more acceptable than that of his brother only because it was sanctified by faith. So this is what I think happened in Genesis 4. Cain was doing what was required to worship. Abel came, and he was giving his best by faith. The firstborn was a way of saying, God, you take the very first harvest. You take the very best cattle. You take the very best what I have because I'm trusting you for your provision. I'm trusting you for what I can't see, but knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are good, knowing that you will provide, and that was done by faith, a joyful gratitude that God will bring his provision to Abel. He's faithful, and Abel says, here's my firstborn. You take the best. I know there's more to come. And he trusted in God's provision. So whether it was you know, possibly a sacrifice, or was still the provision of God, but I think, I think he was giving the very best to God, and it says that God commended him, By accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's a play on words. I I read to you before. When when Abel was murdered by Cain, he told, God told Cain, I hear your brother's voice from the ground, his blood. I hear him. And now he's saying, You know what? Abel still speaks, this time not of death, but of faith. Dead men do tell tales, don't they? They're not silent. And Abel speaks to us today. Are you trusting in God's provision? Are you you trusting and believing in God's power to provide? Are you trusting and believing and giving God worship because God is good? God's power, God's provision. Look at the next one. God's personal presence, verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having, what? Pleased God. Do you know there are only four verses in the Bible about Enoch? Chapter 5, went from chapter 4, now in chapter 5. It says this in in Genesis uh, chapter 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. How's that for a name? You looking for a name? Methuselah. Here's a Bible quiz. What, what's, what's different about Methuselah than any other man that ever lived? Lived the longest. How long? 969, was that right? 969 years. I, I don't even want to live, never, never mind. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm like 800 years old, I'm done. I, I've had enough. I've seen it all. But anyway, all right, sorry for a side note. Anyway, um, So Methuselah, Enoch walked with God after after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then it says again, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. What's interesting in this text is, in, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it says, Enoch walked with God in the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, which is very popular that day, it says, Enoch pleased God. And what the author of the the Septuagint is trying to say is, only he who pleases God walks with God and enjoys a relationship with him. He's kind of saying the same thing, walking with God, pleasing God by faith. Isn't that something that that you would love? I know I would. When When I leave planet Earth, not 900 years later, but when I leave Someone would say, you know what? He walked with God. His faith pleased God. He was walking intimately with God. Isn't that what it means to walk with God? Having a living relationship? When God comes into your life, when Christ comes into your life and you have a personal encounter with Christ, it just it goes more from it. Go, it doesn't just stay in the rational. I, I know there's a God. I believe in God. I even I even go to you know Christmas service and Easter, and I get it. But it becomes a personal encounter with God of the heart. Enoch enjoyed intimacy, a fellowship, a joy, of company between God and him. Kent Hughes says two cannot walk together unless they have the same destination and follow the same path. This Enoch did with God. There is one other requirement in walking together. Two must not only be traveling on the same place, on the same path, but they must also go to this, by the same pace. Enoch was in step with God. Why would you want to be in step with God? It wasn't two equals walking together. I get that, but what a privilege. And it says that because Enoch walked with God, it says God took him. It's like, all right, we're done. Come home to glory, you're not gonna die. Sort of like, uh, who was it, Elijah? Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, so Enoch never died, God just called him home. That's the way to go. Okay, be me up, Lord. And look what it says, this intimate walk with God pleased him, look verse six, great verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So, this faith is drawing near, it pleases God, is twofold. It it is a faith that believes, first, that God exists, and second, that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Who diligently seek Him. Hmm. Again, it's not the power of faith in faith, It, it it is faith in God, seeking God, not your higher power, not whatever you call Him, the God of Scripture. Jesus of Nazareth. Faith has an object. God is the supreme and eternal object of all true faith. So here's Enoch in the midst of a broken, twisted, jacked up world, wicked generation, walking intimately with God. And, 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 and the author takes his life walking with God and uses it as a springboard and says, God rewards those who seek him. You've got to ask the question what is the reward? What is the reward? Is it grace? Think of, being, think of being Enoch for a moment, walking in this generation of, of wickedness that he was raised in. And, and what, what is the reward? Is it joy? Is it strength? Is it grace? Is it wisdom? I think all of that, yes. But I think if we said, Enoch, tell us what is the, the greatest reward, the greatest treasure in the midst of this fallen and broken world, I think he would say limitless entrance into the intimate presence of God. God Himself, which FF Bruce says the reward desired by those who seek him is the joy of finding him. He himself proves to be their exceeding joy, end quote. The ultimate reward is God Himself. God rewards those who seek him by faith, not those who seek his rewards or imagine somehow they can earn him, but ultimately by faith, having a relationship with him from God flows all the grace and mercy and forgiveness. One of the things that we have to be very careful of as a people, as God's people, is that we are not getting caught up, wrapped up into the rewards, although the the rewards in scripture, but we want to make sure our greatest treasure is our greatest prize, our, our, our greatest, what we, what we seek after the most is God himself. Not the things that God gives us. And I say that to all of us because that's so true. It means that we are, we are to seek that which is chief, the chief end of our lives. The purpose by which we were made. And that is the glory of God and enjoyment of God himself. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the end. 1 Peter 3. The examples of faith. The explanation of faith, the example of faith, and then we'll end on the exhortation. I, 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 I'm going to use verse 7 to talk about faith. Your faith, my faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, many of you know the story. Noah and his family, living again in the midst of a depraved, ungodly generation. God comes to him and says, yep, I know you're living on dry land. is not a, a, a river or, a, or an ocean around. But as I want you to do, I want you to buy this build this gigantic vessel size of a battlefield, a football and a football field and a half I think they said, and gather your families and your animals because I'm going to destroy mankind. No water around. And God comes to him in Genesis 6 says, "For behold, I will bring a flood upon the water, upon the earth, destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on the earth will die." But I will establish my covenant, God says, with you. God's a covenant maker. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your wife's sons, with you. 120 years. He's building the ark. And there are two things Noah believed that were unseen. By faith, uh, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. Two things. Number one, the great flood hasn't happened yet. Number two, salvation. Is this ark going to float? Am I going to get it right? That is faith in unseen things, I'll tell you. Not one shred of proof, but the word of God, the declaration of God, the promise of God, faith that Noah heard the word, obeyed the word, trusted and believed what God has said. He said it, he did it reverently. The word reverently is to, to act cautiously, reverent, and stand in awe, right? So, so Noah, Noah hears what's going to happen. Noah believes God. Noah starts building his boat out of honor and respect and awe of God, like, this is serious. I'm going to do exactly, nope, don't put that there. That goes over here. I'm reading the blueprints, right? No, we're doing it just the way God said. His trust in God led to his salvation. Climbed into the ark and lived. And we also know that Noah pleased God just like Enoch because it says in Genesis 6 that he walked with God. That he walked with God. Applying a relationship just like Enoch. And by his faith in action, the text tells us that he condemned the world. By his faith in action, he condemned the world. How did he do that? He was a witness. First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 2 tells us he was a herald of righteousness. There is good old Noah, man, preaching the gospel The flood's coming. They're like, yeah, you're crazy, old man. The flood is coming. The flood is coming. God's judging the world. Take safety, you know, whatever. He says he was a a proclaimer of the gospel, 2 Peter. But not only was it his words that he spoke, as witness that he spoke, but the work every day. For 120 years, he's building this boat. You think people didn't come by and go, that guy's crazy. I'm telling you, there's a flood coming. Never rained. I don't even know what you're talking about. His regular witness and his daily work was enough to condemn the world. As Noah persevered in faith, look what happened. He becomes an heir of righteousness. Look at that last verse. He became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, give me a couple more minutes and stay with me, this is really important. The righteousness spoken here in this text, make no mistake, is the same righteousness that the Apostle Paul insists Derives not from your work, not from human effort, not by a deserved human work, but it is the righteousness that's bestowed by God upon the man of faith. The point the author is making, we need to see this morning, is that this righteousness is actualized, imparted by God by faith. The righteousness by faith is spoken about. We, we studied this already in Genesis 15, 6, Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham was counted righteous or just by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, A righteous, My righteous one shall live how? By faith. Okay? Now, catch this. This was the verse that drove the reformer Martin Luther crazy. He tried, he looked at this verse, the righteous shall live by faith, and he tried to be so righteous so that he can live by faith. Righteous, vindicated, just um, it's like declared in a courtroom, forgiven, not guilty. And Martin Luther looked at this verse, the righteous shall live by faith, and he hated God because he said he, he thought God was saying, you need to obtain this intrinsic righteousness and then walk by faith. Luther knew he was a wicked sinner like the rest of us. It wasn't until he realized that what God was asking him to do was not to gain his own righteousness, some intrinsic righteousness, but a righteousness that God gives to us by faith, freely through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to people who don't have righteousness of their own. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive and embrace it not through moral achievements or activity, but receive it by faith. And the moment Luther understood that, what the Bible was saying, he came to realize as Noah did, as Abraham did, as Paul did, There's a right standing, there's there's a righteousness that belongs to somebody else. A righteousness that is outside of us. A righteousness that is alien to us. A righteousness that is imputed to us and his name is Jesus the Christ. The spotless lamb of God who lived that perfect life we could never live. This is what Luther said, when I grasped, That the justice of God is that righteousness. He thought the justice of God was going to come down on him because he wasn't righteous. He says, When I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith, he says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before the justice or the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet to greater love. The righteousness in our text, in chapter 11, verse 7, of the Old Testament saints, that righteousness by faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, was for the Old Testament saints and for the New Testament saints. That's what he's saying. We look back to the cross. They look forward to the cross. We look back to the work of Christ. They look at the shadows and, and, the, and the types and the foreshadows pointing to the Messiah, to the new covenant. There came a day. We'll close with this. Give me one minute. There came a day when the rain began. Now listen, family. Their day came when rain began for 40 days without stopping. You can imagine the ridicule against old Noah stopped immediately. Noah, believing in the coming judgment of God, believed God and climbed into the ark for his salvation, right? And he was saved and believed. And because he believed, the imputation of Christ's righteousness was given to him, counted toward his account, and he was made just and right before God in the hour of our judgment there's only one hope there's only one hope for you and for me and that is to hide ourselves to come underneath to 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 trust in to rely upon the work of Christ Faith in God wonders at his power. Faith in God worships him in his provision. Faith in God walks with him personally. Faith in God obeys his word promptly. But most importantly, faith that pleases God is treasuring and trusting in Christ alone. Glory in Christ alone. He is our salvation alone. He alone gives us forgiveness. He alone is our hope. He alone, by his atoning death on the cross, can reconcile us sinners To a holy God. He alone lived life perfectly, pleasing God in all of his life. His perfect life then is imputed to our account by faith. And when that happens, you receive forgiveness of sins. You're made right, you're made just, you can walk by faith. So if you're here and you're a believer this morning, are you resting in the truths of the gospel? on all that Christ has accomplished, are you running to him and fellowshipping with him? Is the gospel shaping your heart? Is the gospel changing your life? Is the truths of the gospel of what God has promised and what your hope is in changing the way you make decisions, the way you have relationships? You're growing in your faith. Maybe here this morning you have never come to the personal encounter with the living God. He invites you to come. To trust him. He said you're a sinner. He said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He said sin will not come into my presence ever. I am a perfect and holy and just God. He said I will send my son as a sacrifice for you. Jesus comes on the scene, lives that perfect righteous life that you can't live, and dies in our place as our atoning sacrifice, sheds his blood on the cross, rises from the dead, and says, come to me. Believe and trust in me. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you relying upon him for your salvation, for your justification? I invite you to come to him. He invites you to come. Acknowledge your sin. Trust in his work. Believe he died for you and rose for you. We're going to sing a song. The song goes like this. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. The cornerstone is solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. He's a gift of love. The gift of righteousness. On the cross he died. The wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid wherein the death of Christ I live. So We're going to sing that song. We're going to respond in faith, trusting what Jesus has done. Father, we ask now as we respond as only we can, and that is by faith. Trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And also trusting in your provision, trusting in your power, trusting in your personal care for us. Let us sing to you, not to the screen, to you. And may you grant us faith today. In Jesus' good name, amen.